Hi there. Thanks for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and it is great to have your company yet again for this episode 319. And coming up in this program, uh, we are asking the question, could there have been more than one dinosaur asteroid? We know about the one that created the Chicxulub crater, but they're starting to size things up and there might have been something else. We're also going to talk about something that astronomers took a photo of. It's the sharpest image ever of the R136A1 star. So what's so good about that? It's just the biggest star in the universe, or second biggest if you don't count Fred. And uh, questions about Dyson spheres, the Barry Center, and cosmic microwave background radiation, all to come on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Mm. <laughs> Just snuck in a little tipple while that introduction was <laughs> on. And joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, <laughs> astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. It's not just the astronauts that are reporting it feels good. It's the host of Space Nuts as well. <laughs> yes, just a little, because it's the end of the day here. So, you know, if you're watching this at um, five o'clock in the morning and thinking, ooh, why is he drinking wine? <laughs> no, I'm not. It's, it's, um, it's getting on towards 5 p.m. our local time here. Uh, Fred, good to see you. How you been? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, it's the end of the day here too, by coincidence, uh, but I haven't got a glass of wine, I'm afraid. Oh, I'm uh, sure someone will uh, turn up with someone sooner or later. You never know. With you one never soon. Know. Some, something might happen. Yes, right. indeed. Well, um, I hope you're staying well and staying dry. Yep. We got some rain last night, but I don't think we got anything like as much as you did. We oh, had 12 boy. millimetres in the gauge this morning, which is not that much. We, we've had uh, rain... Every week for the last I don't know how long, our dam is back to bursting and they keep emptying water out of it to keep the air in it for flood mitigation, but it keeps filling back up again. And it's hard to, it's hard to really believe that um, two and a half years ago it was down to 6% of capacity yeah. at the end of that massive drought. And now it hasn't been below 100% for two years. Extraordinary. Burundong Dam, is that right? That's Burundong, yeah. It's um, uh, well, when it's when it's at one hundred percent, it's three times bigger than Sydney Harbour. But when it hits flood mitigation level, it gets up to about five times bigger than Sydney Harbour. Yeah, it is a big, big piece of water. But um, I'm sure you can see it from space. To be honest, oh, you would, yeah. yeah. No, it's an enchanting place as well. It's a yeah, it's lovely, delightful place. Nice, nice area too. Yeah. Now, Fred, let's uh, get down to business and talk about these stories that have come up in astronomy and space science news this week. Could there have been more than one dinosaur asteroid? I found this story fascinating. Well, we th we're, we're all totally fascinated by anything to do with the event that wiped out the dinosaurs, aren't we? And this, yeah. uh, this just compounds the, uh, the mystery, really. So uh, there is a crater... Uh, which has been identified um, actually in the Atlantic Ocean uh, off the coast of Africa. Uh, and it's sort of on the edge uh, of the continental shelf of Africa. So it's in water that's not, you know, humongously deep, but it is pretty deep. Uh, and um, it it's been the, the really interesting thing, and this is what makes you know me admire these um, the, the geologists who do this work so much, is that it actually isn't visible on the seabed. It's oh. buried beneath sediment underneath the seabed, um, and so you have to infer its presence by well fairly complicated means. Uh, and one of the ways that they do it is by seismic measurements, so that you can you can actually map. Uh, sort of what's under the se sediment by looking at the way seismic waves travel through the Earth's crust and through the, the mantle. Yeah. Uh, and so um, it, uh, the scientists who have done this have actually mapped it. It has uh, a name, uh, which is Nadir or Nadir. Uh, that, to me, means the point that in the sky directly look, looking downwards. The zenith is directly over your head. The Nadir or the Nadir is beneath your feet. Um, but it takes its name from 
a sea mount, uh, a mountain that is actually on the on the ocean floor off the continental shelf, uh, which is called the Nadia Sea Mount or the Nadia Sea Mount. Right. And so this crater, which has now been identified not very far away, it's probably a hundred kilometers away, which on a global scale is not that far, is uh, is has been recognised as having characteristics which have been mapped pretty accurately by the look of things um, that suggest, first of all, that it was an object, uh, it was a crater formed by an object um, something like 400 metres in diameter. Um, and at the time, at the time this impact took place, the ocean was about 800 metres deep. So it went straight through this ocean column of water and hit the surface and basically uh, created a crater which is now underneath the sediment uh, down at the bottom of the ocean. Mm. Um, um, but what's ha happened is that the uh, the scientists who have looked at this, they've, they've kind of looked at not just the, the impact itself, but uh, looked for surrounding debris and things of that sort, which are um, still there. There's, there's still evidence of the, the fallout from this huge explosion that would have taken place when this asteroid hit. And it's because of all these studies that the scientists have been able to date uh, the, the Nadia crater. And what they have come up with is the really interesting insight that it's roughly, give or take maybe a million years perhaps, um, it's roughly the same as the uh, Chicxulub crater, the uh -huh. uh, impact that, you know, the crater formed by the impact that wiped out the dinosaurs at the boundary between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene periods yeah. uh, 66 million years ago. So it's roughly that same age. And so, uh, you know, that immediately raises the question, well, is there a, a, a relation here? And we do know that um, asteroids do break up. Uh, and as do comets, we in fact we saw one actually happening back in the uh, uh, mid nineties, nineteen ninety four, when Shoemaker Levy uh, nine, a comet which um, was actually closely approaching Jupiter, and it broke up the, the gravitational tidal effect of Jupiter yeah. broke it up. Uh, so you got several fragments colliding with Jupiter over several days. And the suggestion is that perhaps that is what happened with the Nadia crater. It was a, a, a bit of a chunk of, of, of the same asteroid, maybe formed by tidal effects uh, as the asteroid got near the Earth, or maybe formed by an earlier collision while it was still on its way, you know, mm. if it collided with something else, and then suddenly you've got a pile of debris all going in the same direction at the same speed. Okay. Uh, so you might get multiple multiple impacts. So they're saying these two hit around the same time. Is that what they're suggesting? Yes, that's right. That's the suggestion, because it's got the same age. Now, by the same time, they don't necessarily mean the same day. Right. Um, it could be, you know, the same time within 100,000 years. Oh. Uh, because they don't know that yet. Uh, but but that's the, the, the best bet at the moment. And so uh, what these scientists want to do, and that's the next step, is to do what uh, scientists did a few years ago that we talked about a lot, uh, Andrew, get a drilling rig and go and drill down into the below the sediment and look at the um, you know look at the structure of the rocks underneath uh, where the impact crater is that's what happened at Chicxulub yep. do you remember the um uh, the, the drilling vessel had a funny name. Was it Mabel? I think it was Myrtle. Was it Myrtle? I can't remember. I think you're right. Like I was going drilling. to go with Boaty McBoatface, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Myrtle sounds right. The step up, I can't remember. Anyway, um, it, um, that, that actually you know, proved that, uh, that this was what, uh, that it was an asteroid impact because they found shocked quartz and stuff like that underneath mm. the the surface uh, underneath the surface of the sediment, um, and so that's what the scientists are uh, who are working on this project want to do next. And by the way, they're um, uh, from a university not far from where I was educated. It's not the same one, Harriet Watt University, which is in Scotland, uh, and also the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and uh, there is also a scientist from the University of Arizona. So it's a 
fairly strong team there, uh, and they uh, are dead keen to go and find out whether this really was the same asteroid that, that um, wiped out the dinosaurs. And I guess what you do w- to prove that is to look at the isotopic, isotopic composition of some of the rocks and find out if you can do a match from these, you know, this kind of chemical fingerprint or this atomic fingerprint that you get from that. Odds would have to suggest it was. Uh, mm. It... it, it... It would be a huge coincidence to have two independent asteroids hitting so close together, but, you know, maybe not. Yeah, the, the reasoning on that is quite interesting. So for for a, a Chicxulub-sized asteroid, which is 15 kilometres or so, you know, that's a huge piece of rock. You expect one of those every 100 million years or so. Mm. But for a 400-metre chunk of rock, you might expect one every 700, 800,000 years. So it is possible that it could have been completely unrelated, um, yeah. you know, if you've got rocks, if you've got that sort of interval between uh, impacts that size. Mm. Of course, an impact that size would still have uh, pretty devastating consequences on the local environment. I imagine so. Uh, I also wonder, though, if the second one, which, which one hit first? Chicks are <laughs> Who knows? Ah, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> we don't know the answer to that. What they do say, uh, actually, in the it's a conversation article that's not that hard to to find. Andrew, um, they also say that the impact would have released energy. This is the the Nadia crater would have released approximately a thousand times more energy than what we had from the the, the Tonga eruption recently. Yeah, and that was pretty good because that sent pressure waves all all the way around the Earth and tsunami waves. This would have been a thousand times worse than that. Mm. And and I I read an article about some of the amazing sunrises and sunsets we've been having recently. Yeah, yeah. and that's all because <laughs> of the Tonga eruption. Yes, of all the dust that's in the air. Yeah, um, my yeah, colleagues, and, colleagues of mine at the observatory are recording those, and they're noting, oh, you know, it's really quite pink skies. I've I've taken some amazing early morning photos because you know I get up mm. at Sparrows because I um I have to do the radio show at, at breakfast. But um, oh, Sparrows is an Australian way of saying because when Sparrows wake up, they they get. Uh, sparrows, yeah, whatever. It's an abbreviation. Look it yeah, just look it, it up. I'm not going to say. Yeah, it. but um, <laughs> the we had it in Britain too. Yeah, I, I'm just <laughs> um, wondering though. Had one or the other not happened, would the dinosaurs have survived? Um, I think they would have survived the Nadia crater impact. Okay. Yeah. Um, because it's it's a much smaller event. Um, it, it's so its consequences would have been. Uh, you know the size of a continent, but not not global. Whereas the Chicxulub one definitely had global consequences. Yeah. Uh, so anything swimming in that vicinity at the time, probably. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, probably you, didn't you, have a very good time. It, it will be curtains for that. Yeah. Um, it, it's just hard to fathom. Boom boom. The uh, <laughs> devast the devastation, uh, the size of the areas that, it, that could be devastated by these kinds of events, like four hundred meter asteroid. Yeah, there's a continent. Yes, <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. And, and yeah. we've talked about it before. Depending on the size and impact point, and and certain other factors, uh, how big the devastation is. We've talked about um, asteroids that could cause statewide devastation, yeah. regional devastation. Um, yeah, and it's not always size. I think we did a story once about um, the, the factors that do come into play. Yes, we did. Size yep. is not the absolute factor, which um, you know makes you. It's even scarier when you think about that. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's not just the big ones. No, it's the others as the well. Small ones, if they hit the right way, can be and, super, and super devastating. Yeah, hitting the right kind of terrain. I think um, yes, if I remember rightly it. that thing we covered was that if you hit it in the water you get more of a devastating effect and maybe that's what happened with the the nadia crater yeah maybe uh splashed in the water so maybe you know maybe it did contribute to the death of the, of the dinosaurs we can we can but speculate we can but uh, hopefully one day not far away they will send an expedition out and do a little bit of um a, a drill and see if they can come up with an answer as to whether or not it was a totally separate and independent asteroid impact or was related to the Chicxulub 
asteroid. Yeah, if it can show it's two bits of the same asteroid, that, that's pretty yeah. convincing. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Uh, hopefully more to come on that story uh, in the not-too-distant future. This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the program to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, I've talked to you many times about a virtual private network and the advantages of having one, and it is true. Uh, a lot of people don't need convincing, but it also comes down to the quality of service and you'll get no better than NordVPN. They are the leading service. They can block trackers. Uh, they can check downloaded files for malware. They can just make sure that your whole system is not being infiltrated, whether that's by hackers or by opening an attachment to an email that you probably shouldn't have. And they're highly backed. A lot of big organizations believe in this product and so do we now if you're a space nuts listener you get a, a special deal which uh, i'm going to tell you about in a moment but uh you know there are all sorts of situations where you're exposed to problems online such as hackers and and viruses uh, whether it be at home through your email service or through using public wi-fi all of these things can put you in danger. And with NordVPN, you can protect up to six devices at once from your smart TV to your smartphone uh, to your computer, you name it. And it's as simple as just joining NordVPN and downloading the software. That, but at the moment, there is a special deal for Space Nuts listeners. Now, all you have to do is go to the special URL that's been set up, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. There's an exclusive deal, the NordVPN Cyber Security Package, all-inclusive, plus four months free. That is a fabulous deal and pretty simple. Uh, other advantages, of course, uh, you access the global internet, you uh, get shielded from cyber criminals, and you can secure all those devices I was talking about. But uh, there are extra layers of security when it comes to protecting your digital interests. Uh, the Nord Pass, the password manager, and the Nord Locker, which is a file encryption tool. So you can get all that in one easy package at a very low price with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can try it risk-free. So log on to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. Use the code word spacenuts to get that deal with that extra four months free. That's nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and use the code spacenuts. Now, back to the show. Three, two, one... Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, we've been talking a lot about the James Webb Space Telescope and some of the fabulous image, uh, images that it's been sending back to us, uh, the latest being those uh, incredible images of the Aurora on Jupiter. Uh, yeah. The way they did that was ex exceptional uh, and, and so many more things that we've, we've seen already and, and many more to come, uh, assuming those micrometeoroids don't cause more and more trouble. <laughs> That's right. But there's a new image in the news, which is the sharpest image ever of the star R136A1, which just so happens to be the biggest star in the universe. You've got to tell us how big this thing is. Well, it's not as big as they thought it was. That's the, <laughs> oh, the original, yeah, the original estimate, which comes from observations made with the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been kind of setting the yardstick for for the amount of detail that you can see. The original estimate was uh, between two hundred and fifty and three hundred and twenty times the mass of the sun. Mm. But the new observations um, push that down. They suggest it's only. 170 to 230 times the mass of the sun. So it's gone from about uh, 300 times the mass of the sun to about 200 times the mass of the sun on average. Um, but that doesn't mean that its mass has changed. What it means is that we're seeing a much sharper view. And this is, I think this is a staggering story, really, Andrew, because, um, you know, the space telescopes are the ones that can produce the most um, high resolution images, the ones with the sharpest detail, because they don't have to contend with the Earth's atmosphere, which blurs the light yep. and distorts it. Um, but this particular observation that's, um, that's given us a better 
view of this star and has allowed us to distinguish it from other nearby stars, which is why it, it's you know you, you, you're actually able to, um, to to push down its our estimate of its mass because it's not mingled with other stars in the image that you're seeing. Um, that image has come from a ground-based telescope, a very a very good one. Uh, it's one of the uh, two Gemini telescopes, or Gemini as they tend to call it here in Australia. Uh, the Gemini telescopes, there are two of them, one in uh, Hawaii and one in northern Chile. Uh, they're identical. They have mirrors about, it's, I think it's 8.1 metres in diameter. They're certainly more than 8 metres. I think they're 8.1. Uh, and they... Um, they are equipped with some very fine instrumentation, including uh, an instrument which on the Hawaiian telescope is called Zorro. Oh, very good. <laughs> uh, and uh, because that means is the – sorry, did I say the Hawaiian? No, I think I meant the Chilean Ch one. I meant the Chilean, yes, I beg your pardon. Makes more sense. It does make more sense, yes, Zorro being the Spanish word for fox. Uh, it's on the Chilean telescope. Uh, the The twin instrument in Hawaii is, uh, as you can guess, this is a much more Hawaiian name, Alopeke, <laughs> uh, with, a, with a glottal stop on the A, a bit like Umuamua. You've got to start with a glottal stop, Alopeke. Uh, that's uh, the, the word for fox in native Hawaiian language. Uh -huh. so Zorro, Zorro in Chile, Alopeke in Hawaii, uh, but they're on identical telescopes, and effectively they are identical images. And what they're doing is a trick that um, sort of came to prominence, I guess, 20 years ago, something we call speckle interferometry. Uh, and it relies on the fact that when you look at the blurred image uh, formed by a big telescope, when it's looking through the Earth's atmosphere. You might think that you've just got a blurred mess, and indeed that's a bit what it's like. It just looks like this blurred... In fact, I can tell you it looks a lot like a football kind of wobbling in space, uh, mm. the image of a star, when you see it through the atmosphere. Of course, I saw that many, many, many times on the Anglo-Australian telescope, so on a TV screen, of course. Anyway, it turns out that if you can take really rapid snapshots, a thousandth of a second or something like that, of that blurred blob, it's not just a, a featureless blob. It's got what are called speckles in it. Oh. Uh, it breaks up into speckles, which are tiny individual images of the star that you're looking at. Um, and that's because what the atmosphere does uh, is, uh, as, as the, the turbulence in the atmosphere passes in front of the telescope. There's a kind of characteristic cell size in the turbulent blobs. So you've got a little warm blob that's got a slightly lower refractive index uh, and a, a cold blob next to it with a slightly higher refractive index. And these have a characteristic size, yeah. which is usually in the – and it's the size that actually determines. It's called the R – I can't remember what R stands for, but it's R is what we call it. Uh, it's measured in metres. Um, the bigger the R value, the less turbulence there is. Uh, so small R values are very turbulent, big R values aren't. And um, uh, typically a metre would be really good, uh, you know, a good measure of turbulence. Mm. But you can imagine that if you've got all these small blobs passing over the uh, the the, the sort of window that the telescope's looking through, in other words, across the mirror of the telescope, um, each one of those blobs is going to produce its own image of whatever it is you're looking at. And that's how these speckles arise. They're sort of sub-images formed by the individual, um, you know, the individual blobs of uh, warmer or cooler material in the yeah. atmosphere, uh, the characteristic size of these of these little turbulent cells, as they're called. Uh, and so um, if you're quick and, as I said, thousandth of a second exposure, um, you can uh, – and, and if you then take a video of these things, each, each with a thousand seconds, you can sort of map the way these speckles – move in the image plane and you can actually then reconstruct what it is you're looking at with uh, such fine detail that you're essentially only limited by the laws of physics. Um, it's what we call the diffraction limit of the telescope. Big telescopes can see finer detail than smaller ones. Uh, that's just the way physics works. And in fact, this telescope is considerably bigger than the Hubble Space Telescope, yeah. which has a 2.3 meter, sorry, 2.4 meter diameter mirror. Um, 
This is 8.1. So it's, it's speckles are smaller than the Hubble's would be if the Hubble was on the ground. But what it means is that you can resolve finer detail. And actually, I might um, recommend that uh, listeners and viewers go to the Noir Lab site, N-O-I-R-L-A-B, uh, which is the National Science F uh, Foundation's it's actually the National Optical Infrared Laboratory. It stands for. It's uh, it used to be called N O uh, N O I R, but it's now no. What was it called? It's, no N O A O. That's right. National Optical Astronomy Observatories. It was a N O A O. It's now Noir Lab. Uh, they've put out a press release uh, which is headed "Sharpest Image Ever of Universe's Most Massive Known Star." And on that website, you'll find a really compelling side-by-side -side view of this region of space. It's actually mm. in the Large Magellanic Cloud, 160,000 light years away, uh, centered on R136A1, which you've already told us. Uh, and you can see the image formed by the Zorro instrument on the Gemini South Telescope and the image formed by the Hubble Space Telescope. And I have to say, the Hubble comes off second best in it that It does, comparison. doesn't it? It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, it we're is. used to Hubble setting the yardstick, but not this time. Well, we've replaced it now, so... Yes, sadly, uh, this instrument will outperform the James Webb Space Telescope wow. as well. But of course, the two, you know, this is only very, very specialized observation. It's not looking at particularly faint objects. Uh, these are objects that uh, will be, you know, visible in a in a smaller telescope, 17th magnitude. It's not particularly. Mm. I know somebody's wondering, but mm -hmm. uh, being the biggest known star in the universe, what kind of star is it? Uh, it's a big star, um, so technically known as. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, the biggest stars and the hottest are what we call OB stars. Uh, that's their spectrum classification. Did you uh, say obese OB. stars? Not obese, but they are. <laughs> o, and, o, o and B. So remember spectral, the, the early astronomers classified the spectra, the rainbow spectra of stars, uh, and started off calling them A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but yeah. it was soon realised that that didn't mean much. Um, in fact, if you order them in temperature, uh, it goes O, B, A, F, G, K, M. And, yeah, I don't know whether you remember the, the mnemonic for that. Oh, be a fine girl or gal or guy. Kiss me. Right. <laughs> uh, sometimes there was an R and N on the end. Right now was the answer for that. So um, O stars are the hottest, um, very, very hot, very massive stars. So that's what it is. Very likely. Yeah. And, and are they common? No, they're rare. They're, uh -huh. they're very rare. And that's why this is such an important observation. Um, and especially, you know, when it's the record holder, when it's the one that we think is the most massive star ever observed, uh, it still is, even with that reduced waistline that we've just given it, you know, in pushing it down to 200 times the mass of the sun, it's still the most massive star observed. Yeah. That's, that's because it's found the internet and got itself a diet coach, <laughs> but I reckon. Is that what you do? Yeah. yeah it's, it's got its own Instagram account and, yeah. A stellar diet coach, yeah. yeah maybe yeah. so. Good. Mm. Um, um, trouble is, that was all, the, the light that we're getting from that is 160,000 years old. They might have had the internet in the large Magellanic, Magellanic Cloud 160,000 yeah. years ago. Um, are those kinds of stars, O stars, long-lived? No. Thank you. You're asking all the right questions, Andrew. Uh, they're not, actually. They don't last for very long. Uh, and, um, you know, a lifetime typically 10, 20 million years compared with the 10 billion years that is our sun's lifespan. Wow. Um, and in case you're wondering where this star came from, it's right in the heart of what's called the Tarantula, tarantula Nebula in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a region where stars are forming. Mm. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's a star forming region. Uh, and this is one that formed maybe 10 million years ago, something like that. So what would make it so big when other stars aren't? What, what, what factors go into that formula? Yeah, actually, the fact that it's in the middle of a cluster maybe helps because the, you know, if you've got stars all around you, um, that the, the, if you think of the way stars form, they form in clouds of gas and dust, uh, which basically collapse, not in their entirety, but what you get is sort of cells of material within those clouds that collapse into 
uh, high, high, their own gravitational pulls them together and they eventually collapse into stars. So if you've got a dense, a very dense gas and dust cloud, which is forming stars within its cells, and we've seen pictures of that sort of thing already from the Hubble, sorry, from the James Webb Space Telescope, um, then the, the, the denser the material, uh, the more likely you are to form massive stars. Mm. So it just as well as forming a cluster. The yeah. right circumstances with the right amount of um, raw materials yeah. and raw wham, material, bam, thank right. you, ma'am, an obese star. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm. It's, uh, yeah, if you would like to see those images, uh, the website that Fred mentioned is noirlab, N-O-I-R-L-A-B dot E-D-U. Should not be difficult for you to find. Uh, some great images there and the comparison that uh, Fred mentioned between Zorro and Hubble is uh, is staggering. It is quite amazing, yeah. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. It is time to deal with some audience questions, Fred. We're going to try and squeeze three in today. Two of them are text questions. Uh, the first one comes from Pablo. Hello, my name is Pablo. What a coincidence, because that's what I thought his name was. Uh, from <laughs> Toronto, Canada. Uh, I've read about things called Dyson spheres. To my understanding, it is a ring that is around the star that acts like a gigantic solar panel. To my knowledge, they are still theoretical devices. So hopefully you can answer my questions. My question has two parts. One, would this ring create a shadow on Earth or other planets, similar to how a tree uh, creates a shadow for grass uh, or on the ground? Uh, two, if the purpose of this device is to harness a star's energy and convert it to electricity, how would you connect the device to the Earth? Uh, it would be difficult to have a wire running uh, for one AU. Thanks, Pablo. <laughs> I love this question because I actually read the answer to this oh, question when I was uh, looking at another story uh, mm -hmm. about how to harness the um, the solar power of the, of the sun and use it on Earth. But uh, let's, let's sort of deal with the two parts. Uh, firstly, please explain a Dyson sphere. Yeah, well, I hope the answer I give is the same one that you read, <laughs> Andrew. So um, it goes back uh, several decades um, but uh, a scientist whose name I'm, I sh should remember, but I'm afraid I can't. I, I did write about um, him because it, it was a him in the um, in Space Warp. Uh, and I should have grabbed Space Warp and had a look, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to waffle. Um, th this particular scientist classified s potential civilizations, and we're talking now about extraterrestrial civilizations, by their energy consumption. So, you know, the, the, the lowest level of energy and, and the lowest level of civilization are those species that consume fossil fuels. Oh. So we're, we're at the really dim end of all this. And yeah. then you've got several stages collecting all the radiation that falls on a planet, uh, if you can do that, um, and, and utilizing that. Uh, but the highest level is... Um, of, of, of extraterrestrial civilization, which demands the most energy, uh, the speculation is that you uh, you collect all the energy from your star. And it was another scientist uh, whose name was Dyson who said, well, that's the, the way to become the most energy efficient that you possibly could be. You build a structure, a mega structure around the star, which will collect all the energy that the star emits. So this is not a ring. It's actually a sphere. Yeah, uh, that you build around the star, you collect all the radiation, uh, and then yes, you've got your wire, one astronomical unit long. Um, I think what you have to imagine is that the the utilizers of this radiation are so advanced technologically that they just flit around in space. They don't really need a planet. Um, and they collect the radiation wherever they can find it. That might yep. be a bit flippant, but... Um, uh, the idea is that, that you, the solar panels are collecting all the radiation. I suspect you'd live on the megastructure, actually. You'd find some way to live on it rather than worrying about being on a puny planet. Yeah, probably um, what the outside would make sense. Yeah, although I've wondered about that. You know, mm -hmm. do you put it on the – do you put the – 
Dyson sphere outside the Earth or inside the uh, sorry outside the orbit of the Earth or inside the orbit of the Earth. And I think you're right. You've got to put it on the inside um, because otherwise there's going to be quite a lot of thermal radiation coming from the the thing inside. There is outside as well, actually. Mm. Uh, the Dyson sphere will emit infrared radiation because it will get warm. Uh, and, and that's how people have been looking for them, just to cut to a question that wasn't asked. Uh, some astronomers have been looking for a kind of infrared signature that would come from uh, a, techno a megastructure uh, around a parent star that was collecting all its radiation for an advanced civilization, but getting warm in the process and radiating infrared on, on certain wavelengths. Yeah. They haven't found anything so uh -huh. far. They haven't found anything, um, which is why we don't think these things exist. But it's a it's a figment of the imagination. So would it cast shadows? Well, uh, yes, it would. Um, if it's a sphere around the whole star, it's going to block out all the light from the star, yeah. and all you'll see will be indirect radiation from the Dyson sphere itself. Yeah, it would have a massive impact on um, the Earth's ecology, I imagine. Yes, I think you, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yes, there would be shadows. Um, now, uh, as for how you'd get the energy to Earth, uh, I read a story, I think it was yesterday, about the idea of putting satellites into space and harnessing the energy of the sun and beaming it back mm. to solar, um, uh, solar panel fields via laser. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's re re reared its ugly head again as this because 30 years ago there was work done on doing what you're just talking about but um, doing it uh, – sorry, I'm just kicking the window because there's this – uh, there's the rogue cat has come into our yard and our cat doesn't like him. So if I kick the window, it scares him away. There we go, he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is cat wars here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so uh, the idea was raised many years ago of doing that, putting solar panels in space and beaming the energy, the electricity uh, down via microwaves. Um so you, you beam microwaves, which are what's inside, inside your oven, <laughs> down onto the Earth's surface. Yeah. And um, that always seemed to me to be a bit dodgy as an idea. Um, but now it's moved into a different regime because uh, we're now talking about laser communications in space and things like that. So yeah. people are talking about beaming the, beaming the energy down with lasers. So that could be the answer, Pablo. Um, yeah, and, and it's starting to become affordable. That's what's interesting about that story. It is actually starting to look like it could be feasible at the very least. Mm. So there might be some news on that in the future. Thanks for your question, Pablo. We'll go to uh, another text question. Hey, guys, great show. Is he talking about us? Um, uh, David here from Dallas, Texas. I had a question about the Barry Center between the Earth and the Moon. Since the Moon is moving away from the Earth slowly, at what point will the Barry Center move outside the Earth's interior? And then what will we call the Moon? It's a brilliant question. It is a lovely um, question. Uh, but it gave me a sleepless night, uh, <laughs> Andrew, because that came in... Um, it came in late on Friday evening. I don't know whether you remember. We got it from Hugh. Yeah. Uh, and I read it just before I went to sleep. Uh, and I and so I did the calculation the whole night. It was, you know, it was, <laughs> it was one of those things. It's you're half awake, you're half dreaming, but the, this damn thing about the Barry Centre kept cropping up the whole night. Yeah. But by uh, the morning, I'd worked it out. And um, I actually got it wrong because I... Uh, forgot to add a one in the formula, um, but that's all right. It didn't make that much difference. Um, so let's just unpick the question. Um, if you've got two objects orbiting one another and they're of sim similar masses, then they, they will orbit around the barycenter, which is their common center of gravity. Yeah. Uh, if you've got uh, a large object and a small object, the barycenter moves towards the larger object. And if you've got a large object and a very small object, the barycenter is inside the the larger object. And that's the case with the Earth and the Moon. Uh, so the Earth-Moon barycenter is, it's actually not as near the middle of the Earth as you'd think. It's 75% of the way 
up to the surface of the Earth. Oh, um, it's actually you know quite high, and of course it moves. It gets twists around. Uh, it's an imaginary point, but it moves as the as the moon goes around the Earth. Mm. So the calculation that kept me awake was uh, how far away does the moon have to be uh, for the barycenter to emerge from the surface of the Earth? Yeah. And the, and um, I'll tell you the answer. Well, it's the moon is 384,000 kilometres away now. Uh, 240,000 miles, is that right, from my old days when I used to work in miles? Anyway, 384,000 kilometres. It would need to be 514,000 kilometres, more than half a million kilometres away. At that distance, the barycenter is on the surface of the Earth. And so it will, uh, you know, any further, and the barycenter is between the Earth and the, the, Earth and the Moon. However... <laughs> Uh, I also worked out that if if, it, if the moon keeps going at the rate it's going at the moment, which is 3.82 centimetres a year, uh, and it, it keeps on going at that speed as it leaves the Earth, it will take uh, about, uh, let me, just over 4 billion years for, ah. the, uh, for the moon to get to that point where the barycenter pops up from the from the Earth's surface. But that's never going to happen because... <laughs> because long before that, uh, the moon's motion will have will have stopped, actually. In fact, maybe not long before it. Um, uh, we we think it's 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 still a few billion years. Uh, but as, uh, perhaps I can qualify this a little bit. What will happen is that the Earth's, the moon's motion away from the Earth will slow down gradually. Yeah. So the calculation I did that gave me four billion years was if it keeps going at three point eight two centimeters a year, but it's not going to do that. It will slow down because. Um, as the moon draws energy from the Earth, the Earth's rotation slows down. And remember, they're going to wind up with this equilibrium situation where the moon and the Earth always face one another. The month and the, and the day will be the same length, which is 47 of our present days. And the distance between the two will be about half a million kilometres. Mm. So um, that means the barycentre will never come out of the body of the earth it will always be lurking somewhere beneath the surface when we get to that um, when we get to that equilibrium situation let's let's say it did would would um people on the surface that are in that barry center feel anything no they wouldn't um i i there, there wouldn't be you know the the there would be tidal effects, a bit like what we've got now. Uh, yeah. They'd be a bit more complicated. But, you know, it's a really interesting thought, isn't it? Oh, the barycenter's here. <laughs> but it yeah. won't be here for very long because as the moon goes around the Earth, it's, it's drifting with it, the Earth's moving as well. Mm. Um, but the, the last bit of David's question, if it did, if, you know, uh, physics was defied and the barycenter did emerge from the body of the Earth, uh, what do you call the moon? Well, that's a good question because it stops being a satellite of the Earth and it becomes a companion, uh, a, a double planet. It, yeah. the, the Earth well, moon becomes it, it, a, it's too small to be a planet, isn't it? It's too small to be a planet, so it's a planet and a dwarf planet, but it's right. a it's a double planet. So the moon, yeah, the moon becomes a dwarf planet. But it would it'd have to retain its name, Luna, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would, oh, it would never change that. That's, nah, yeah. see. <laughs> That's him with the woodwork. Pluto is still Pluto, even though it got re deregistered as a planet. That's right. Pluto is a good example, though, because Pluto and Charon uh, are, you know, the barycenter is in between them because Charon's mm. half the diameter of Pluto. It's uh, much bigger. Uh, I should have said the moon is only 180th of the mass of the Earth, and that was the number that I had in my head when I was doing this calculation in my sleep. Very good. All right. Uh, there you have it, David, a, a pretty um, detailed explanation of the whys and wherefores of the Barry Centre. Uh, now, we're going to uh, throw to another question. This one's an audio question from Buddy in Oregon. Hi, guys. It's Buddy again from Oregon. Hey, when you're talking about the microwave background radiation, when you said that it's microwaves because, the light, because it's been stretched until it's only now just a microwave, is the light been stretched or has the space been stretched? Thanks, Buddy. Thanks for your uh, support. Uh, Buddy sent us a lot of questions. So I just thought I'd throw that one in because um, I, I, it's a good question. Uh, what's been stretched in the process of the microwave background radiation, which is the, the remnant of the Big Bang? So, so yes, it's 
And the answer is both, in fact. So um, what we've got here is a scenario where uh, we're looking so far out into space that we eventually, because it's always looking back in time as well, we eventually look back to a time when the universe was not transparent. So light didn't go through it. Uh, it was a blinding fog of radiation. Um, so what you're going to see when you look back so far, what you're going to see is a radiation all the way around the sky. And if the universe wasn't expanding, our sky will be brighter than the sun. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, everywhere. Um, but uh, because we'd be looking back to a time when it was... Uh, you know, when it was um, still shining brightly. But of course, uh, since that radiation was emitted, um, the universe has expanded by, I think it's, a, it's about 1,300 times the factor by which it's expanded. Mm. And what that does is it changes visible light by stretching the light. So it's the light that's being stretched by the stretching of the universe, um, and it t turns into microwaves. So the wave, the waves themselves have been stretched as they pass through the universe. Okay, there you are, buddy. Um, great question, and yeah, uh, it's probably not one that many people think of, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but um, great to hear from you. Uh, a question without notice, Fred. Very quickly, one of our regular YouTube uh, viewers, uh, because we go out live when we're recording, and we package it up later to make it actually sound good for the, <laughs> for the internet. Um, one of our <laughs> regular YouTube viewers is wondering if there's any news on the Magellan Telescope. Yes, uh, there is actually, and that, that's a great, a great prompt. Um, the giant Magellan Telescope, which is the uh, sort of 23-metre equivalent, it will have uh, seven 8.4-metre diameter mirrors, which are arranged in a kind of flower petal pattern uh, being built at a place called Las Campanas, uh, which means the bells, and that's because the rocks actually ping like bells if you ping them. I've been there and seen it. Uh, there's a big hole in the ground, which is where the giant Magellan telescope is going to go. So it's in northern Chile. It's a, a, a venture, a multinational venture. We in Australia have a small role in it because we were uh, we contributed to kicking the kickoff funding uh, and have also we're also designing and building an instrument for it. Uh, but uh, the reason why it's been in the news is that last week, I think it was, the National Science Foundation in the US allocated uh, an extra tranche of funding to it of 205 million US dollars, which is really, really good news uh, because they've the problem with big telescopes is they always cost more than you thought they would. <laughs> and the money you started off with at the beginning is not going to last. And so that's kind of what's happening. Um, I might just throw in as well as that good news. Um, I was at a, a colloquium, a seminar a couple of weeks ago given by one of the uh, Giant Magellan Telescope team. And it was about the, uh, the, the cell that will hold each of these uh, seven giant mirrors. They're huge, 8.4 metres in diameter. Um, so each one has to have a mirror cell, which is the th apparatus that, that supports a mirror so that yeah. it doesn't flex and bend. Um, and they're building a test one. In fact, they've built it and they're doing tests on it just to make sure that this is going to work before they build six more <laughs> to, uh, to, to make up the telescope because these things are all arranged on a central axis. It's going to be a marvellous structure when it's built. Mm. But the detail that these scientists and engineers are going into uh, and the amount that they've achieved so far, it was really staggering. It was a very, very impressive talk. Fantastic. All right. Um, and uh, we've just received a big thank you from the person who asked that question. So, uh, yeah, glad we could help you out. And I've got yeah, another great. one without notice, Fred. This comes from one of our Facebook followers, and I know this bloke, Paul Keane, uh, because we often swap messages on Facebook. Uh, and he, we would have had to do this next week because someone would have asked anyway. But uh, if it was 100,000 years later, we're talking about the uh, the, um, the the second asteroid yeah. to to just you know that, that that hit off Africa that we uh, talked about earlier. Uh, if it was a hundred thousand years later, would there be an identifiable identifiable ring of iridium separate from the one left Ooh. by the Chicxulub <laughs> hit? Maybe. So the iridium was the clue um, for the, the for that that uh, that dinosaur extinction was caused by something from space because iridium uh, is found in space objects. Um, yeah, there might be. I mean, uh, that would put a different 
uh, an additional layer of iridium. Uh, now, 100,000 years geologically might not be that long to separate these strata yeah. uh, as they're laid down. But, yeah, I'm sure people will be looking for that. It's a great thought. It is indeed. Good on you, Paul. Lovely to hear from you, and uh, I'll see you on Facebook. Uh, now, um, that just about wraps it up, Fred. Of course, if people do have question, questions, and we got a whole raft of them after uh, last week's desperate appeal, uh, we'll try and get through those. <laughs> and uh, But if you do have questions, go to the Space Nuts website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io, and you can ask your question through the AMA tab or the Send Us Your Audio Question or voice question uh, on the front page. And uh, I, I do have a little bit of news, a little bit of news to share with you. Uh, we are going to be trialling a brand new podcast. In fact, uh, the first edition has been recorded and probably will be out any time now. It's going to be called Astronomy Daily, and it's going to be, well, ultimately uh, a daily podcast, 10 or 15 minutes, just going through the news of the day from Astronomy Daily uh, on what's happening in um, astronomy and space science. So I hope you'll join me for that one. Fred will be an occasional guest. He can't commit to a daily thing. We did ask him, and he just gave me a flat-out no. Um, but um, That's because I've got a job. Yeah. <laughs> I've got about seven of them now. But, uh, yes, uh, uh, keep an eye out for it, Astronomy Daily. I will have a co-host. I won't reveal anything, but it's something quite different. <laughs> and, the, and, and the fact that I've called her thing probably gives you a bit of an idea. But anyway, um, look out for it. Astronomy Daily, uh, the, um, uh, the trial episode or pilot. We call it a pilot, won't we? Yeah. The pilot episode is out very, very soon. Well, by the time this is out as a podcast, it will be out anyway. So look for it and let us know what you think. It's, um, it's a work in progress, but uh, really looking forward to Astronomy Daily. I don't know where I'm going to fit that into my repertoire. Got too much to do, but uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you, Fred, as always. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, thanks, Andrew. Next week, hopefully, we might have news on the Artemis 1 mission. I was about to because, wish them yeah. well. Artemis is yeah. due for liftoff uh, around 8.30 Eastern Daylight Time in the United States and uh, on the 29th of August all things being equal, and you can watch it live on NASA TV, by the way. So, uh, yeah, that will be really exciting. So, yes, fingers crossed we'll have some good news regarding Artemis 1 next week because my name's on it. I've got a boarding pass. Is, yeah, <laughs> boarding pass is on Yes, <laughs> so that'll be fun. All right, thanks, Fred. We'll see you next week. Sounds great. Thanks, Andrew. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And, of course, uh, thanks as always to Fred. Uh, to Fred. Always say thank you to Fred, but uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio who's pushing buttons and picking his teeth and all sorts of other exciting things. From me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. We'll look forward to joining you next week on another episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from sites.com.